Well, we've made it to the season of Advent. I hope this time of the year is exciting to you. It is to me. I, I love this season of the year. I love having an excuse to be very intentional uh, about talking about Jesus and about how important it is that he came to us. I've been thinking about what my favorite Christmas decoration is. We decorated Friday. I don't know how many of you did. We normally do that the day after Thanksgiving. Let me drink just a sec. But uh, I don't know what your favorite Christmas decoration is. I'm going to tell you what my favorite Christmas decoration is. It's not the tree, even though I love the tree and every year I get some new ornament to hang on it. Uh, It's not the lights, and not only because they're a pain to put up, uh, they do look very pretty. It's not even the mistletoe and having an excuse to kiss my wife. Um, My favorite Christmas decoration is the nativity scene. In fact, I have kind of a little collection of them going. Uh, And what I like about nativity scenes is not only that it reminds us what it is we're celebrating, the birth of Christ, but what I like about them is that the nativity scene is a kind of collapsed scene of adoration. We collapse into one moment, the arrival of the shepherds, which happened pretty much the night he was born, and then the arrival of the wise men from the east, which probably happened a couple of years later. We, we act like they all showed up at the same time, and they are all there to worship the baby that's just been born. I love arranging my nativities. I put Jesus first, and then I make sure every other figure is looking at Jesus, because it is a scene of adoration. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Why is adoration something we should be talking about when we talk about Jesus' birth? Well, let's consider a few reasons. We're in Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 through 17. Let's read verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. We follow up here, and we're kind of starting in the middle, but the scene immediately preceding these verses is the description of the new Jerusalem, this holy city of God that descends from heaven to earth. And some people think that we're talking here about the end of the world and heaven and what it's going to be like, you know, the whole thing. We talk about streets of gold and all this. But uh, in Revelation, this city descending from heaven to earth from which issues an invitation to people to enter in who are not yet in, makes me think we're not talking about the end of the world and new heavens and new earth, although it's part of the image. It's the beginning of that. Uh, But in Revelation, this city is described as the bride of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, and that's one of the beloved ways of referring in the New Testament to the church. So we have this image of God's church, which is basically heaven having descended to earth. God is now among us, dwelling in human hearts and from human hearts, constructing a holy temple, a holy city, a holy Jerusalem in which he lives on this earth. And in the middle of the city is the tree of life with fruit and leaves to provide healing for the nations. And from through the city flows the river of life. 
That is the image that comes right before Jesus talking here. His holy church, which is the foothold of the new heavens and new earth, which is the beginning of what Christ is bringing into this fallen creation. And now Jesus himself speaks up. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. Jesus is reminding us that uh, he is coming soon and that he will reward each according to what he's done. What you do in life makes a huge difference. And uh, Jesus is reminding us that we are going to give an account to him. When he says, this is it, we're done with this order of things, and when he calls uh, the final curtain on this order of existence and says, we are doing away with sin and death forever, we are purging creation of all of that, and it will be absolute new heavens and new earth forever. But when that moment arrives, Jesus is going to give to each one of us what we've chosen. And what you choose will be uh, borne out in the work uh, that you have accomplished with your life. Have you chosen him? Has Christ been the work of your life? Has worshiping him, pursuing him, following after him, knowing him and being known by him, has that been the work of your life? Or have you chosen something else to invest your life in? Well, Jesus is reminding us that there will be a moment when we will receive the reward of what we have chosen to invest ourselves in. And uh, let me tell you, it, it, it can be very good or it can be very bad. We don't do people any favors when we tr- omit this little bit of information. Jesus came to save the world. He came and gave his life on a cross to purchase you from every wicked and base and evil thing you have ever done. That's great news. But we also need to remind people, and if you say no, then Jesus will not give that to you. He will not force it upon you. There will come a time when we will each give an account and we don't know how long we have. Our time is limited. Even if we, we, don't, we don't know when Jesus will return, that could be right now. Before I finish this sermon, he could return. But even if he didn't, I could right now have an aneurysm and drop dead in front of all of you. We don't know how long we have. We don't know how much time we have. And the the fact that we are going to receive what we have invested ourselves in is a timely reminder. I have a question from this verse. Jesus calls our attention to his imminent return to give to each what they have chosen. If he were to show up today, what would he say you have chosen regarding himself? Let's keep reading. Verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus reminds us of who he is. Why do we adore him? Why, does he, why is he the only legitimate object of our utmost devotion? 
Well, he's the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. It's, he's the A and the Z. The first and the last. Everything that exists that has a beginning and an end, before every beginning, Jesus is already there. And after every ending, Jesus is there to close chapter on it. Not only that, he says, I am the beginning and the end. I've talked to you about this word before, telos. That Greek word end means not just end as in terminus, as in the end point of something, but end as in goal, as in the end of a race. The final destination, the intended final destination. So Jesus is saying, I'm not only the origin of everything that exists, I am its ultimate goal. You want to know why you breathe and live and exist? You are alive for Jesus. The purpose of your existence is Jesus. He is the goal, the end of your life. What is the chief end of your life? Jesus. If we make the goal of our life anything else, we are wasting what we've been given. We are squandering the gift of life because there is no other goal that we can substitute in its place. I have a question. Jesus claims to be the A and the Z, the point of origin and the final destination of everything that exists. How does this claim affect the way you are living your life? Verse 14, Jesus describes people who are blessed. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Blessing is a much maligned word in Christian circles. There are a lot of people who uh, translate blessing into what the world would describe as blessing. What somebody who has no interest in Christ and in righteousness and truth uh, and grace, uh, somebody who has no interest in any of that would be happy with this definition of blessing, which is a lot of money, good health, and no problems. That's not the blessing God's, God's promising us in Jesus. Jesus has never promised that we will never be sick. He has never promised that we will all be wealthy. He has never promised, in fact, he has guaranteed the exact opposite. He has never promised we will not face difficulties in life. He has guaranteed in the world you will have tribulations. So what is the blessing for those who have turned to Christ? Their robes are washed. That's a visual to describe what we're talking about. When we say Jesus saves us from sin, it isn't just that he forgives our sin. It isn't just that he uh, makes it so that when we have a final accounting to give of ourselves, we are not condemned because of our many faults and failures and wicked actions, but that, that we are forgiven. It certainly means that, but it means more than that. When Christ says, I'm going I'm to rescue you from sin, I'm going to save you from sin, he means, I am going to burn sin out of you. 
I'm not just going to forgive your sin. I'm going to get rid of it. This is the process we call sanctification. This process by which God, when we come to, to Christ in faith, gives us his spirit and begins a process of transformation. Salvation in Christ is not just a, a you know, get out of jail free at the end, get out of hell free card when the end comes. It is a process of being broken out from the power of sin and death. Rescued from the tyranny of sin over our lives now that the power of sin over us has been broken and we are free to begin to experience a new series of priorities, a new series of desires and longings and things that used to hold our hearts no longer hold them because sin's curse is broken. What is the blessing the greatest blessing perhaps we have in Christ that sin is a thing he is going to cleanse us of and we will come out on the other side of it whiter than snow this isn't merely an imputed righteousness it is a realized righteousness in Christ God's not just going to pretend like we are righteous he is going to make us righteous In fact, this guarantees our right to everlasting life. When God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, he barred their access to the tree of life. But guess what? This holy city of God, this church that is heaven's foothold on earth right now, in the center of that city, is once more the tree of life. Christ has restored us to the promise of eternal life. Life abundant and true that will never end. Christ makes it so that we are received in the city of God with open gates. We don't have to sneak in. We don't have to claw our way in. The doors are thrown wide open to receive us. And we are welcomed in, not by merits of our own, but by what Christ has done for us. These are the blessed. Verse 15 describes those not blessed. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Here's a description of life when Christ is not the center. Sorcery. You know, when we turn away from Christ, that doesn't mean we turn away from wanting help. So we turn to uh, other sources of spiritual help and we try to find people who can maybe give us an upper hand and maybe we can learn some incantations or buy an appropriate little statue of a cat with a, a hand going like this and that'll guarantee wealth for us and we pursue anything and everything other than Jesus to try to guarantee that we get some kind of advantage in this life. We fall into sorcery seeking supernatural help from places other than Jesus. Sexual immorality, our sexuality becomes not a gift that binds husband and wife profoundly and spiritually in a mystical sense. 
so that they form the appropriate beginning building block of what becomes the family, which is the cell from which society is constructed. But sex becomes selfish, recreational, sometimes even uh, violence inflicted on others. It becomes about what I want. Outside of Christ, we become murderers. Jesus described the origin of murder. When you look at somebody and say, you idiot, you moron, when you look at somebody and despise them in your heart, you have taken the first step in the process that culminates in murder, which is the ultimate saying, you're not worth living. When we turn from Christ, rather than discover a valuation of every human life, a love of every human life, we despise those around us, idolaters. And this is inevitable. We're going to devote ourselves to something. And if it's not Jesus, it'll be something else. And if Jesus is not the object of your devotion, you are an idolater. Because you have substituted something other than the one who created you for himself in the place only he deserves. It could be your career. It could be your spouse. It could be your children. It could be any number of things. But if you have given your devotion to something other than Jesus, you're an idolater. People who love and practice falsehood. Consider how many lies people really love to hear. People don't so much want to be right as to be validated. Right? It doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong as long as you tell me I'm right. That's all I care about. In fact, if I want it bad enough, it's going to be right no matter what anybody says. There's no blessing in a life apart from Christ. I have a question from these verses. Jesus describes people who are in his church and people who are outside of it. How have you noted the truth of Jesus' observations in your own life and in the lives of those around you? Let's keep reading verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is reminding his readers that not only has he given this whole book of Revelation and which started out with letters specifically uh, addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor but the whole letter has been an address to his church a call to perseverance in the face of horrendous opposition and a promise that Jesus is worth any cost to the church. And he reminds them that he is not just the fulfillment of the promises to David. God promised David, one descendant of yours is going to establish an eternal kingdom. And he's going to reign in peace and righteousness forever. And every kingdom will bow to him. When Christ rose from the dead, he told his disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. And make disciples. We're not waiting for Jesus to establish himself as ruler over creation. That has already happened. 
In Romans 13, we are told to submit to the governing authorities because it is impossible for any authority to rise, yet, but that Christ allows it because he is the one in control. But Jesus is not just that promised descendant of David. He is actually the root of David because he is the beginning of all things. And even though he is the culmination of David, he is also the origin of David. He is the one who brought the whole Davidic dynasty into existence and who set apart David and called him to the kingship. He is the bright morning star. We end this passage with an invitation. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. There are a couple more verses before the final book of the Bible closes, but they're just about not tinkering with the message, not messing with the message. They're a warning against that. But in terms of the actual content, this is the closing invitation in the Bible. Come! That's what we're doing this Advent season. We are inviting the world to come, draw near to the one who came to rescue you. And come in adoration. Come on bended knee. Make him the object of your devotion. Not just something you cram into the leftover corners of your life. Not just something you do once in a while to keep your parents happy. Discover what you were given the breath of life for. Come, and this invitation comes from God himself, the Spirit, and also from his church. Come, and this is not something to be kept secret. Anybody who hears is invited to join the call. Come. There's no more important invitation to be issued than this. Come. Are you thirsty? Is there something in the pit of your soul crying out for significance? And you try to fill it with this and that and the other and every accomplishment you reach is not enough because that is not what you need in that hole. The open wound in our souls cries out for Jesus. And if you are thirsty, here's the great news. Jesus came to give it. There's no price. There's no payment. You don't have to go through some heart-wrenching, difficult sacrifice or penance or pay back something. You just show up. Because Jesus came to us as a gift. That's one aspect of Christmas I think we get right. I love the giving of gifts at Christmas. I love thinking about people and thinking, what can I give them that would convey to them that I love them? 
that would make their life in some fashion or form or way just a tiny bit better. Because when I had nothing, Jesus gave me the only thing I really needed. And he gave it freely. He gave me himself. Jesus is the gift of gifts. And any willing to receive it can come and receive it. I have a final question. Jesus invites us into life without any payment on our part. How have you made responding to this invitation yourself and extending it to others a central aspect of your living? So we are here at this time of year where we celebrate the birth of Christ and we continue to marvel at the wonderful things he's done, how he brings life where there was death, hope where there was despair, uh, breath of life where there was nothing but darkness, understanding where there was nothing but confusion, purpose where there was none. We're celebrating the birth of the King of Kings, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who created us with a purpose and who fulfills in us that purpose. What can we say but come? The gift is given freely. Come! Kneel at his feet and receive what he came to give. Come before Jesus in surrender and adoration. Give him alone the deepest devotion of your heart. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to us. Thank you for giving us life, giving us purpose. And even though by sin we... we separated ourselves from that purpose and fell into this pit from which we had no way out. You have come to rescue. You have come to cleanse. You have come to bring life where there was death and to restore to us the promise of eternal living. Jesus, may we turn to you in adoration. May we make of you the object of the devotion of our hearts and help us to invite others to come, others who have not yet found you. Make yourself known and use us to help others come to know you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name, by your merits alone that we pray. Amen.